If we haven't met before, my name's Dan, one of the pastors here. Uh, it is great to see you this morning. I'll just get this out of the way. Uh, small in number that we are today. Uh, I, in fact, it's great to see some of you that have come back from holidays and some of you that have come back from uh, recovery from uh, COVID as well. Um, yeah, I know some of you, some on the live stream this morning are still quite unwell. Uh, so it'd be good if we keep praying for those. Um, so Gary's not here this morning, still not doing so good. I know Juanita's not doing so well this morning too. She's recovering, but still tired. So um, we might pray in a moment again, just for those who are still struggling and are sick. Um, but great that we could gather. <laughs> uh, I thought, Ross, that was a phenomenal call to worship just for us to bask in who God is in his holiness, but then also in his love. And we'll be reflecting on some similar things this morning uh, as we come into this passage from Isaiah 6. But how about we pray? Let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are unwell and pray for ourselves as we come to this passage. Lord, worthy are you to receive glory and honour and power. As we've just read those words, we do say together, you are worthy, Lord, to receive our worship this morning. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and continue to have their being. And so, Lord, we want to worship you with our ears as we listen to your word, with our hearts as we respond to your word, and with our lives when we go from this place to live lives of faith of obedience. Lord, we pray for those who couldn't join us this morning, that you would also help them to attend to your word, uh, to be encouraged uh, by us uh, in knowing that we are gathered. Um, and, uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would heal them soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start by going back in time. It's the 1930s. We're in Detroit, and three teenagers hop onto a bus. They saunter their way through the centre aisle, and they see someone sitting already in the back row, which is, of course, where teenagers want to sit. And so they slump just in front of him. Now, slouched in the back row is an African-American man, sort of down like this. And the teenagers notice him, and they turn around in their seats, and they begin to sort of heckle the guy, insult after insult. And the man says nothing. So they decide to challenge him to a fight. Come on, we'll even let you throw the first punch, you fink. Or whatever people say in the 1930s, I don't know. <laughs> fink seems like the right word, doesn't it? We'll even let you throw the first punch. And the man says nothing. So that's when they ratchet up the heat on the insults. Maybe given the 1930s, it gets racist at this point. And the man still says nothing. The bus suddenly stops. The man stands up, and the teenagers watch as he rises taller and taller until he's towering above them. This man is six foot two, actually. That's why he's been slouching in the back seat. He reaches into his pocket, takes out a business card, hands it to them, and then leaves the bus. They gather around the business card, and they read the words, Joe Lewis, professional boxer. They just picked a fight with the man who was soon to become the heavyweight champion of the world for 12 years running. <laughs> Don't you know who you're dealing with, guys? This is a man who, again, six foot two, all muscle. He had the reputation, I don't know how he got this, but he had the reputation that he could knock out a horse with one punch. <laughs> 
Don't you just want to grab them by the shoulders and go, you idiots. Don't you know who that was? There's a similar thing happening in this passage this morning from Isaiah. He gives us this soaring, majestic, powerful, confronting, challenging, towering, dangerous picture of God. It's almost as if God himself here in this passage hands us a business card. And on the business card, it says who he really is. The words on it are holy, holy, holy. As we come into this passage and Isaiah gives us this vision of who God is, that's what we're going to see, the holiness of God. And in a sense, he grabs us by the shoulders and goes, don't you know who you're dealing with? Don't underestimate who this God is. And as we go through Isaiah chapter 6, we'll understand what God's holiness is, why it's so important, and what we must do in response. Now, I was talking with one of my neighbours this week. Uh, we had a, a street party on our front lawn. Great idea, by the way. If you don't know your neighbours too well, you want to get to know them, uh, just throw a street party. Tell them, drop letters around and say, we're going to be in our front lawn, 4pm, this date. Whoever turns up, turns up. Bring your own drink. So we just did that. We got sort of a few people from the street come along. And um, my neighbour there, he, uh, he and I were playing table tennis together on our driveway and we got talking, chatting about life and... You know, being a pastor, he asked me, oh, you know, so what's it like, blah, 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 and we get talking. We get talking about God. We get talking about deeper things. And I asked him a question that I love asking people from time to time when the moment's right. The question was, if you died tonight and you came face to face with God, what do you think you'd say to him? Why do you think he should let you into heaven? Great question to ask people. And so uh, he was an honest guy. He gave me a good response. So he said, um, I think this is a common answer for a lot of people, Look, I'd say I've been a pretty good person, right? I think God would be okay with me. I've tried my best not to hurt others, tried my best to stay out of the way. And yeah, I've tried my best to stay out of God's way too, you know? And I think that probably he'll accept me because I haven't gone out of my way to get in his way. That was the, the sort of impression that he gave me. And again, I think that's a, a really common idea of God that a lot of Aussies have. What, what was my neighbor's picture of God? It's that he's, you know, he's, he's pretty tolerant, he's pretty accepting, he'll sort of stay out of our way as long as we stay out of his way, let him do his thing and we'll do our thing and then when it all comes down to it, oh well, he's very loving and he'll accept us, right? Now the problem with my neighbour's answer is I don't know what God he's talking about. When you look at this picture that Isaiah gives us, it's totally different. It's the 700s B.C., and as we read in verse 1, King Uzziah has just died. He was one of the most sort of effective kings for Israel in that he brought an era of stability and prosperity. He wasn't an overly godly king. But, you know, it's almost like the death of Queen Elizabeth in a way. Um, not to make a statement about her godliness or, or whatever there, but in terms of he reigned for 50 years, as did Queen Elizabeth. It was the end of a dynasty for this guy to die. And in that year, as one king dies, Isaiah comes face to face with the true king in a vision that the Lord gives him. It's a day like any other. He goes into the temple. Perhaps he's seeking direction from God that he would speak to the people, right? He was a prophet, so he was essentially God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And uh, there, he gets a lot more than he bargained for. He's bowing in the temple, perhaps waiting to hear from God, and instead he sees 
the Lord. What does he see when he encounters God? Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The first thing that Isaiah sees about this holy, holy, holy God is that he's enormous, right? He's huge. He's high and lifted up above him. You've probably stood under a tall building before, like maybe if you've been down to Sydney and you've stood under Centrepoint Tower or you've been overseas and been under a building that's actually tall. Like we only have sort of... They're not skyscrapers here in Australia, are they? They're, they're like almost sky kind of there-ers or something. <laughs> um, but if you stood under a tall building, you know, it, it, you just get this sense that it dwarfs you, don't you? Like you can pass a tall person on the street, okay? Uh, so, so you might walk past Rob Rich and, and you might go, oh, yeah, he's about six feet tall, he's taller than me. Or you might pass, oh, you might pass Peter, he's, he's a pretty tall bloke, right? And you might go, oh, I don't know, six foot four, six foot five. It's, you, you sort of get a measurement, right? Because we're all within a foot or so of each other. We have a bit of a reference point. When you stand under a tall building, you don't really have a number, do you? <laughs> it's, you, you just know it's massive and it dwarfs you and it's on a different sense of scale. That's kind of what Isaiah sees here about God. He, he can't get a measuring tape and put it up to God and say, well, he's six foot four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever. He just goes, the train of his robe, right, the thing that just runs along behind his garment, fills the whole building of the temple. It's his way of saying, you can't measure him. When you're in the presence of God, he simply dwarfs you, he's on a different sense of scale. In fact, to speak truly, God is outside of space and outside of time because he's the creator of space and time. Isaiah is grasping at words. Oh, the train of his robe fills the temple. He's high and lifted up. I can't describe how enormous this God actually is. In fact, it's a study of contrasts. He's infinite and we are but finite. He's the creator and we are but creatures. And when scripture talks about the holiness of God, this distinction is at the center. To be holy is to be set apart. That's what it means. It's to be different. Um, Originally, I had a a kids talk planned today where I had all these props and everything. It's going to be great, I promise you. (laughs) I'll save it for another time. But here's a different illustration, right? At the beginning of the Bible, we see the very first use of the word holy. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Come there with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So no sooner has the Bible gotten to its second chapter than that we hear the word holy. In chapter 2, verse 3, we see that God has spent six days creating everything out of nothing, right? He's the creator. We are creatures. He's made everything in six days worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, what does he do? Tell me, what does he do? He rests on the seventh day. And so here's what we read in Genesis chapter 2. We'll start at verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So hear that? Six days of work, one day of rest. Here's a day that's set apart from the rest. It's different. 
It's a, a different kind of day. So verse 3, God blessed the seventh day and made it what? Holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So because this day is different from the work days, he blessed it, set it apart, made it distinct, called it holy, a holy day. Literally a holiday. That's where we get the word from, right? Why is a day of rest called a holiday? Because it's a holy day. (laughs) It's set apart from the rest. That's what it means to be holy. And so, come back to Isaiah 6. When we talk about God being uh, being holy, what we're saying is he's distinct. He's set apart. He's in a different category, right? Like last week, we saw that he's independent. He needs no one. He needs nothing because he's the creator. He's self-sufficient. Unlike us, we're contingent. We are dependent. We have a point in time where we began and then we continue on. God is different. He never began. He is the beginning. He's dependent on nothing and no one. And so when we say that he's holy, he's in a league of his own. No one and nothing compares to him. He alone is the enormous king on the throne over all creation as its creator and nobody else. So imagine standing in the presence of that king. One that you can't measure. One that's in a league of his own. One that fits into a category that we literally have no physical face-to-face experience with. It's like a two-dimensional object encountering a three-dimensional object. How do I make sense of this? God's holiness is a study in contrasts, which leads Isaiah to see a second thing about God. And this is the one we're actually going to camp out on more for the rest of the sermon. The second thing that Isaiah sees about God is that he is fearsome. He's fearsome. This is not a comforting picture of God. This is a confronting picture of God. In verse 2, he sees angels or seraphim flying around. Right? And these aren't the sort of Valentine's Day Cupid angels that have a little nappy and, you know, one of the heartstring bow kind of things, heart tipped bow, arrow thing. It's not that. Look at these guys, these seraphim. Because in the Bible, when someone comes face to face with an angel, the angel always, always has to tell them three words. Do not fear. Angels are fearsome. And especially these ones, these seraphim, their name literally means fiery ones. So picture the scene. You've got these six-winged angels. And if you heard the reading from uh, Rhonda in, in Revelation 4, they're covered in eyes. <laughs> they see everything around them. Flying about the throne, these giant fearful things that are wreathed in flame, perhaps. What a fearsome picture. And yet, the seraphim are not the scariest thing in this image. Right Now, I, I'm a bit of a wuss. Uh, I, I can't handle horror movies. I don't know if any of you guys can. I, I avoid them like the plague. They just really give me the heebie-jeebies. and I get the images stuck in my mind for weeks afterwards, and so I just don't watch them. Uh, but um, if I was here in this scene, I'd be doing like what I do if a horror movie's on, covering my eyes, okay? I don't want to see these angels. I don't want to see this, this fire. It's too much, covered in too much. But even the seraphim, as they're flying around the throne, cover their own eyes, because you notice there, in verse 2, they have six wings, but with two, they cover their faces. They cannot even look on this God. 
these fearsome, flame-wreathed angels. He is too holy, too perfect, too pure, too set apart for them to look on. So they cover their eyes. They cover their feet with another set of wings because they dare not approach him. And with the other two, they orbit, singing holy, holy, holy. See, what's the picture here? It's not just the picture that God is enormous and he's above us. It's a picture that he's fearsome. To put it another way, God is not like a beautiful landscape. Sometimes we think of God this way, right? I'm a landscape photographer. One of my ideas of relaxing is getting up early in the morning, as my wife calls it, butt o'clock, and I go out and I sit at a, at a rock shelf somewhere and look out at the water at the sunrise coming up and have my camera on its tripod, tea in my thermos, and there's that moment just where the sun peeks over the horizon and my camera's all ready to capture it, and it just comes over and I go, ah, oh. you know what I mean? You see a sunrise and you just go, ah. Oh. And then you have a sip of your tea and you go, this is just lovely. God's not like that. Sometimes we think of him like that. We talk about the awe of God, and it's a bit like the awe of a sunrise. Like, ah, I'll just sigh in the presence of God. But here, he's more than just a good view that we can appreciate with a morning coffee. He's the fearsome king over absolutely everything that even the angels dare not look at, that even they dare not approach on their own terms. What place would we have in that scene? What place does Isaiah have in this scene? Especially as he hears the seraphim crying out in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, 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 or different, different, different. In a league of his own, his own, his own. And notice the angels repeat this three times. Nowhere else in Scripture do we get one of the attributes of God repeated three times, right? In fact, um, you know, nerdy theologians have invented a word for this. They call it the trisagion, tri for three. Uh, and so they, they've had to invent a category for what this is. It's this statement above all other statements. And yes, we read that God is love. Of course, in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. He is. Love is central to who he is. Of course, but never do we read that God is love, love, love. Right? The Bible doesn't quote the Beatles. This is holy, holy, holy. There's something for us to realize here. That when God reveals himself to Isaiah, he wants to sort of hit him over the head as well as us with this reality that he is holy. This thing that people often forget about God or downplay about God or underestimate about God. Here's the business card, right? <laughs> the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And just as that business card sort of drops into Isaiah's hand, verse 4, the temple begins to shake. It's, it's in an earthquake. It's like the, the epicenter of this apocalypse for Isaiah. The holiness of God comes with fearsomeness. But let's be clear, this is not to say that God is a giant bully, okay? It's not like he's just there waiting to pick on people who are smaller than him and getting some perverse sense of joy from that. A better way to think about this experience of God's holiness is what the, uh, the preacher R.C. Sproul calls an overpowering 
and overwhelming experience of creatureliness. He is creator. I am but a creature. He's the one who made everything out of nothing. I am but grass that blows away with the wind. It's a study of contrast. And R.C. Sproul, uh, I was reading his book this week, The Holiness of God. Has anyone read this? It's a fantastic book. Really fantastic. Grab a copy. What does Rob say? Sell everything you have and buy this book. Right? Fantastic little book. And, um, and Sproul talks about a, uh, an experience he has in his 20s of this overwhelming sense of creatureliness. Uh, one night in his early 20s, he wakes up with an unshakable desire to go and be with God. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Like you just wake up in the middle of the night and you're struck by, I just need to go pray. I just need to go and read the scriptures. I just need to go and be with God. See some nods around. This is the kind of experience that he had. And he was studying at university at this time. So he's there in his dorm room and he wakes up. I've got to go and meet with God. It's like 4 a.m. And so he treks across the dark university campus. And the way he describes it is it's just all very sort of, well, you get the picture. He, it's like the shadows are watching him. And he notices the icicles, sort of these sharp daggers hanging from the gutters of the buildings. And uh, the bell tower then chimes above him four times. It's all very gothic, isn't it? <laughs> very dark. Uh, but he arrives at the chapel, which is where he's going to meet with the Lord, and he's completely alone, and he hears his footsteps echoing and reverberating on the stone floor and the walls. And there he kneels down. And here's how we describe what happened next as he met there with the Lord. Listen to these words. I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was telltale, a thump, thump against my chest. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. It's pretty full on, isn't it? But there it is, that overpowering, overwhelming sense of creatureliness, the finite creature dwarfed by the perfection and purity of the infinite creator, and we could use other metaphors for this. It's like treading water in an ocean of unending breadth and depth, horizon all around you. It's like falling through air with nothing to catch you, no safety rope, no ground, just falling. It's coming face to face with the one we can never control, never constrain, never bribe, Never cajole, never defeat, never even fully understand or get to the bottom of. This is the experience of the holiness of God. Have you experienced that? Have you been face to face with this God that Isaiah saw, that R.C. Sproul saw? Maybe like Sproul praying in the middle of the night. Have you had that kind of experience? And I don't mean, you know, did you literally see a vision like Isaiah did or even that you literally felt an icy chill up your neck or whatever like Sproul did. But, but have you seen him like this? 
Maybe as you were there in the middle of the night, but maybe just as you were there reading a confronting passage of Scripture that really brought God's character to bear on you or really raised the depths of our sin for you. Maybe as you were there praying, pouring out your heart to Him, and it just struck you who He really is. Maybe as you were just alone, you could have even been washing the dishes, just idly thinking, and then you begin to reflect on the Lord, and then it hits you, oh, that's who I'm dealing with. Have you had that kind of experience before? Do you have that kind of experience of the Lord? Again, this is what my neighbor and so many people here in Australia get wrong about God, right? He's not eye to eye with us. He's not a peer. He's not someone that's just on our level. He's entirely other. Now, one challenge to all this, and you may have picked this up in R.C. Sproul's description, it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We're not talking here about a really pleasant sort of experience. Isn't the Christian life meant to be pleasant? Isn't it just meant to be happy and, and blissful and peaceful? This makes us really uncomfortable, right? Especially when you look at how Isaiah responds to being in the presence of God. Verse 5, what does he say? I said, woe is me. Woe is me. Now, we don't say woe all that much in today's world, do we? <laughs> Unless we're mocking someone, like a friend comes to you and says, oh, you won't believe it, they had to reschedule my flight to Iceland and now I've got a stopover in Hawaii. You know, and you go, oh, well, woe is me, right? Something like that. Uh, but this is an actual lament. This is, this, this is what Isaiah is going, what can I say? I can't just say that I'm sad. I can't just say this is a bit annoying or a bit frustrating. No, woe is me. It's a lament over himself. Why? For I am lost. By myself, before this holy God, I'm lost. I'm done for. I actually love the way the King James Version puts this, where it says, not lost, but undone. I am undone. I am unraveled. I am shattered why does he say that? Because when he sees God in all, his, all of his holiness, he actually sees himself. It sort of reflects back and he gets this view that, oh no, I, this unravels me. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Now that word unclean had a special meaning for God's people at this point in history. Remember how I said that King Uzziah had died uh, back in verse 1? Uh, he was a man, literally, of unclean lips. He had leprosy. And so, this, you know, the flaky skin disease that was rampant at the time, uh, very contagious, very painful. And so um, the law demanded that if you had leprosy, you weren't allowed to be around other people that didn't have leprosy. You were, like, in permanent quarantine. <laughs> and whenever you would be walking along the road and maybe you'd see someone approaching who didn't have leprosy, you'd have to cover your mouth put up your hand to warn them and yell, unclean, unclean. So it would be a reminder to you that you're the one who's dirty in this situation, who bears the disease, and other people need to flee from you, right? That's the experience that Isaiah has here. He's putting up his hand, as it were, and, and saying to the Lord, I'm unclean. Not you, me. I'm the one with something wrong. 
unclean, unclean, unclean. And not just my lips, but my life and my heart. Everything is wrong. There's no health in me, he says earlier in this book. He's a sinner, he's reminded, in other words. Before a holy God, he's reminded how far he falls short. And if you haven't had the kind of experience I was describing before of seeing this holy God, then perhaps this is what you're missing. Perhaps you're missing the fact that, like me and like everyone else in this room, you too are unclean, a sinner, deserving of God's judgment. That doesn't often sit comfortably for us because we usually get our sense of self-esteem by comparing to other people, right? Like, you know, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing better than the guy at work who got fired for stealing. <laughs> I'm doing better than the lady across the road who lets her dog poop in the neighbor's gardens. Like, I'm doing better than all them. If you imagine a bit of a, a bell curve of people, right, where, you know, down here you've got the really, really bad, the Hitlers and so on, and then up here you've got the really, really good. Well, yeah, I'm somewhere on the bell. <laughs> I'm not doing so bad. I might even, on my good days, be better than the average. But the thing is, God's comparison point is, or his standard is not bell curve, and it's not horizontal, us versus other people. It's us versus his holy perfection. His standard is perfection. Matthew 5.48, Jesus puts it this way, you must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard that God has for us, sinless perfection. And where does it leave us? Well, honestly, I don't even meet my own standards, let alone God's. <laughs> if you're honest, I think you'd say the same. And so what can we say before this holy God? Can we, like my neighbor, say, I've been a pretty good person and I've stayed out of your way? No, we can't. All we can say is, unclean, unclean, and you are holy, holy, holy. And look, if you've been around a church or Christians for any stretch of time, you know what's coming next, right? Be perfect. You must be holy as God is holy, but you can't. And so what do we need? God's grace. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. He loves us. He sent Jesus to save us. Good news, gospel. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But first, a warning. We can jump too quickly to grace. That sounds wrong, doesn't it? We can never jump too quickly to grace, can we? Think about how much God loves us. He wants us to know how gracious he is. He doesn't want us to be uncomfortable before him. Because the Christian life is all about peace and about comfort and about feeling loved, right? Well, <laughs> yes, grace is the only answer to our problem. But the thing about humans is that we are the sort of people who don't like discomfort. That's just part of the human condition. It's why we start out our years with the best of intentions to go and exercise, and it's already now the 8th of January and most of us have failed. Right? Exercise is uncomfortable and we don't particularly like it. Uh, and so we watch the clock at work and we put off hard conversations with the sort of people that want to avoid discomfort as much as we can. Limit it. And it's common for people to get this picture of a holy, perfect God and sort of suppress it so that it makes them less uncomfortable. Now, non-Christians, perhaps like my neighbour, can do that in one way, 
You know, they might say, I'm a pretty good person, and that sort of feels like it gets them off the hook. But Christians can do this by jumping too quickly to the wonderful reality of God's grace. And again, that might seem odd, but I'll, I'll give you a bit of an illustration. Uh, again, in his book here, Sproul t- tells a story about uh, a time when he was a professor uh, teaching at a, a Christian university, and uh, he set his students three short papers to do for the, uh, the semester. And he said to them, here's the standard, okay? I'll mark you fairly, but you have to make sure that your paper is in on time. No extensions, no excuses, unless you've been in like a car accident or your mum or dad have passed away, (laughs) then no extensions. And I'm giving you heaps of time now so you can start them. Come and talk to me if you need help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But get it in by the due date. He had a class of 250 students. First assignment rolls around and 225 of them hand in the essay. The other 25 appear the next day there in class and they go, Oh, Professor Sproul, please forgive us. We've just gotten out of high school and we're still getting used to college. And besides, we didn't manage our time very well. It's all our fault. Please, we cast ourselves on your mercy. Please forgive us. Right, that really penitent sort of thing. And he goes... Okay, all right, tell you what, get it to me by the end of the week and I'll mark you normally, won't mark you down, won't give you an F, any of that sort of stuff, no problem. But let it be known, your second assignment must be in on time. So the second assignment rolls around. 250 students, 200 handed in on time. Evidently, the 25 that got off the hook have gone around and told the others, hey, there's a chance here. <laughs> and so this time, the students come into class and they're, they're worried, but they're not sort of really, really uncomfortable like last time. And they say, oh, Professor Sproul, sorry, we, we didn't manage our time well again. You know, we had midterm exams, we had other classes. Can you please just give us another break? And he goes, okay. I'll give you another week with this one. But, again, under no uncertain terms, will you get an extension for your third one? This is it. Last straw. Make sure you get it in on time. Third assignment rolls around. 250 students. 150 handed in on time. This time, those 100 students that didn't hand it in saunter into class. There's sort of an easygoing confidence about them, notes Professor Sproul, because they know, ah, you know, it'll be fine. He gave us a break the last two times, he'll give us a break again. That's what he's like. Talks a big word, but doesn't really follow through. And so they come in and they say, ah, sorry, Professor, yeah, we did it again, but we'll get it to you when we can. So he takes out his lethal grade book, this little black book, and he calls out, Rugendijk! Did you hand in your assignment? No? F. Jenkins, did you hand in your assignment? No? F. And the students start to cause an uproar. That's not fair. Oh, really? That's not fair. What's not fair about it? Oh, well, last time you didn't give us an F and now you're giving us an F. Well, I'll tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is that the last two times I didn't give you an F. You deserved an F, and I decided not to give you one. So I tell you what, 
I can backdate it and give you Fs for all your assignments because that would be fair, or you can just take this one and the students, the 100, settled for their, just the one F. <laughs> now, there's something in that, I think, that's illustrative of human nature. We get very, very comfortable with the idea of mercy and we begin to think that we deserve it and we begin to think that, oh, th this is just what gets shown to people like us. You know, I know the professor said that it's due tomorrow, but he's always merciful, so she'll be right. There's no need to get uncomfortable. We can so easily do the same thing with God's grace. We begin to think that we deserve it. We begin to think that this is just the sort of God that he is. He's the sort of God that doesn't really worry about holiness because he's all about love and mercy. And perhaps we begin to even shut down any feelings of discomfort that we might have, like discomfort over our sin or discomfort over how enormous and holy that he is. See, we can jump too quickly to grace and it leaves us lopsided because we lose touch with how offensive our sin really is and we lose touch with how holy and high and mighty God really is. And in fact, it's only in that place of humility where we realise those things that God's grace has any meaning for us at all. Till sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. And so Isaiah experiences this. It's at his lowest point when he's saying, I'm undone and I'm unclean, that then one of the seraphim comes down with a burning coal there in verse 7. Take a look. And it says that he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There's grace. Now, You'd imagine this would hurt, right? <laughs> a burning coal touching your lips. The fact that we don't read anything about Isaiah's pain shows that this is all sort of symbolic. It's, it's meant to show us something. What's it showing? It's showing that Isaiah had nothing he could do or say to solve his situation. It took an act of God, divine initiative, to come down and purify him, to burn his sin away, as it were, to make him what he needs to be so that he can stand before a holy God, to make him holy, to make him pure, to make him sinless. That's what he does for Isaiah. And Isaiah then goes, now here am I, I'm going to serve you, Lord. He has the confidence to say that because he's been saved, he's been atoned for. That's what God does for Isaiah and that's what God does for us today through Jesus. Jesus is God. He is this God. He's holy, he's unstained, perfect, pure. And yet, Jesus comes down into our stained, unclean, sinful, mucky world. And he came to deal with our sin, not by holding out a burning coal, but by stretching out his arms on the cross. See, what Jesus does on the cross is he takes our sin and our uncleanness upon himself and there he takes the wrath and the judgment and the, the gaze of God that we deserve. He's the one on the cross who says, I'm unclean. But he does it not because he deserves it. He does it because he takes our uncleanness upon himself. It's like, you know, imagine that my clothes here are just covered in stains and dirt and mud, right? Jesus, here he is with his perfectly unstained, pure clothing. And what he does on the cross is he swaps clothes, he takes my dirty apparel upon himself and then gives me his pure, white, clean clothing. 
In so doing, by trusting in Jesus' work on the cross where he takes the wrath of God for our sin in our place, we become what we need to be to stand before a holy God. We become holy. We become righteous. We become pure. We become unstained. We become perfect. We meet God's standard, not because of anything we do or anything we say. What could Isaiah do? Nothing. He was undone, unraveled, shattered, lost. That's all any of us can say before God on our own. I am lost. But when we turn to Jesus in faith, we can then say, I am found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, I now am found, was blind, but now I see. There it is. This is what the Lord does for us so that we can have relationship with him, a holy God. In fact, R.C. Sproul experienced something else that night in his university's chapel. After some time feeling the terror of God's holiness grip him, here's what happened. Listen to this. The terror passed. But soon it was followed by another wave. This wave was different. It flooded my soul with unspeakable peace. A peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. At once, I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life-transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once for all. From this moment, there could be no turning back. There could be no erasure of the indelible imprint of its power. I was alone with God a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. I knew in that hour that I had tasted of the Holy Grail. Within me was born a new thirst. Pay attention to this. This is really important. Within me was born a new thirst that could never be fully satisfied in this world. I resolved to learn more, to pursue this God who lived in dark Gothic, Gothic cathedrals and who invaded my dormitory room to rouse me from complacent slumber. The beauty of that, that terror gave way to peace, and discomfort gave way to comfort, that sinful desires for worldly things began to give way to new desires for, for knowing God. Have you experienced this? Yes, the holiness of God, but then the peace of a merciful God. And note there that he hasn't changed, right? It's not as though he said, I'll stop being holy so that you can be with me. He's still this completely holy, perfect God. And it's that God that R.C. Sproul then said, I want to know him, the God of the cathedrals, <laughs> the God in the darkness, the God that makes me feel uncomfortable. I want to know him. And to know him, I need to know his peace, the peace that only the grace of Christ gives. Have you experienced something like this? And even better, do you still experience something like this? Because the kind of thing that Sproul talks about in this book, what he's talking about there, is not a one-and-done experience, friends. This is actually the characteristic of the Christian life. It's coming face-to-face -face with this God that Isaiah saw again and again and again, seeing him in his holiness, reckoning with our unclean sin, confessing it afresh, and then finding that terror giving way to peace. 
We find that as we sit before him again and say, unclean, unclean, still unbelievably unclean. How could I still be unclean? I've been a Christian all these years. How? How do I still keep stuffing it up? Then we find that this God lifts us up with his loving grace. That's the Christian life. We're undone and unraveled and then held in his merciful hand again and again. And if you've never experienced this, now's the time. Now's the time, not later, not when you're on your deathbed. Now, turn to this God. Find him to be not just a mate, a peer on your level, but the God that he really is. Turn to him, let him unravel you. Let him expose your sinful rebellion against him and then let him hold you in his merciful hand. Jesus came to save you, friend. Turn to him now. And if, if you want to take that step this morning, talk with someone that you know here or come and talk with me, love to chat further about what that looks like. But if you have had this experience of God's holiness and you do trust that Jesus is still your only hope, you are a Christian then I urge you, keep making room for discomfort with God. Bit of an odd thing to say, but keep making room to be uncomfortable. Till sin be bitter, grace will not be sweet. God's grace is good, it's the best news in the world, but it only becomes sweeter and better when we make room for the discomfort of our sinfulness in the face of God's holiness. A couple of ideas. Um, there's a great saying that a pastor once taught me, don't rush, don't rob. When it comes to Bible reading, when it comes to prayer, don't rush, don't rob. What he's saying is, if you rush through it, you will rob yourself of the experience of really being with God. Sit with it. Take time with it. Don't rush, don't rob. We must learn to, to make room for his holy uncomfortableness so when you're next praying perhaps you're sitting down with the scriptures and you're reading you're praying you know think about the way that jesus taught us to pray he said our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name literally that's holy be your name make yourself holy before me lord make yourself holy before this world lord sit with that beginning of the prayer so you say father and you go yes i am your child because of jesus you sit in that place, but then you go, holy be your name. Lord, show yourself now to be the holy God that you are before me. I make room for it. I'm not going to suppress it. I'm not going to run away. I make room for the discomfort. And then you might want to do something like um, move towards confessing your sin to him. A good way of praying is acts, A-C-T-S, adore, confess, thanks, seek, or supplication, ask. Asking comes later. First, confess. Um, so you might want to pause and just go before this holy God, where have I fallen short? And another good idea here is um, don't just confess in the general. Confess in the specific. Sometimes we just do the general where we go, Lord, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. And we move on. And that's okay. He does forgive us. <laughs> he has through Jesus' work on the cross. But confess in the specific. Go back through your day. Think, Lord, where did I leave undone the things that you would have me do? And where did I do the things that you would not have me do? 
Where did I fail to love you with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because if you're anything like me, you've already failed dozens and dozens of times today. <laughs> where did I fail to love my neighbor as myself? Lord, where would you have me grow? Sit with that and confess to him. Let him unravel you again. And then, then, sit with it a bit longer if you have to, but then let him lift you up with his merciful, loving hand. I'd love for us to finish our time together by just praying that way now. We'll bow our heads and I'll lead us through just a few statements and give you time to reflect with the Lord. So let's pray together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Please show yourself as holy, perfect and pure to us now. Lord, we confess our sin to you. The things we should not have done. The things we should have done. the wrong desires of our hearts which we've nurtured and enacted. The people we failed to love. The times we've rejected you, ignored you, offended you, grieved you. Now we look to Christ, our Holy Saviour. Please forgive us and let us know your grace afresh. Thank you for making us holy in your sight. We have no other hope but you, Lord Jesus. And in your name we pray. Amen.